My name is Michelle Coe, and I'm an assistant professor at the University of California, Davis. In this essay, I call for more diversity and a commitment to health equity in U.S. medical schools. Typically, to be Asian in America is to be unseen and unheard. Discussions about race and racism in the United States generally are not about us. Calls for diversity and inclusion are not about us, except in extreme circumstances, such as the recent and tragic COVID-19 pandemic that shift the dynamic temporarily. We are charted out in the American dialogue on race only when the topic is higher education admissions or the model minority myth. That is, the picture of the hardworking Asian American who does not complain and succeeds academically. Our success is held up to rebuke other minorities, suggesting that if we can succeed, then the predominantly white society must not be racist. My experience in medical school and my career since have underscored this. Through this lens, recent efforts to further limit race and ethnicity considerations and admissions deeply trouble me. 20 years ago, I entered the Charles R. Drew UCLA medical education program as a first-year medical student. The mission of the program, a partnership between the Charles R. Drew University of Medicine and Science, a historically black institution, and the David Geffen School of Medicine at the University of California, Los Angeles, is to train students who are committed to practicing in underserved communities. When I was there, students spent their first two years at UCLA, followed by two clinical years at the Martin Luther King Jr. Drew Medical Center in the Watts and Willowbrook neighborhoods of South Los Angeles. Following the Watts riots of 1965, the hospital and Charles R. Drew University had been established to address the dearth of healthcare services in the community. The area served by King Drew was and still is one of the poorest in Los Angeles. Approximately 40% of the residents are African-American and 60% are Latinx. The Drew student body is highly diverse and more closely reflects the communities in greatest need than the average medical school student body does. In my cohort of 24 students, approximately two-thirds were Black or Latinx, and the remaining third consisted of a mix of white first-generation American students and children of Middle Eastern and Asian immigrants. As a child of parents who had immigrated to the U.S. from Taiwan to attend graduate school, I was in the latter category. Students enrolled in the traditional UCLA medical school program, on the other hand, were predominantly white or Asian American. In my year, Drew students nearly doubled the number of Black and Latinx students in the traditional UCLA medical program. While this diversity allowed for rich, cross-racial and cross-cultural interactions, it also exposed the daily racism of medical school. My black and brown classmates continually received the message that their status as medical students and physicians was undeserved at best, if not downright unwelcome. Once, when attempting to check on a patient, a black female classmate, wearing her white coat, badge, and stethoscope, and with the bulging pockets of books and note cards of any medical student, was accosted by a white nurse for taking a chart without asking first, how do I know you're not some cafeteria worker, the nurse admonished her. Another time, a surgery resident loudly berated one of my classmates in the hallway, showering her with a litany of her faults. She was too slow, too ignorant, and too indecisive. The resident ended the tirade with a final denouncement. You're only here because you're black. During one late night dinner, we placed bets on who would come and who would be too stressed out to join us, only to find out later that a group of second years, all black men, had never made it because they had been stopped and searched by the police in the Tony neighborhood that borders the UCLA campus. 
The Drew program added another layer of complexity to the rules of racism in medical school. Even some of our black and brown friends who were part of the traditional UCLA medical school track would quickly assert to our white and Asian classmates, oh, I'm not in Drew. This one swift statement encapsulated the racialized hierarchy of our class. White and Asian UCLA students at the top, followed by black and brown UCLA students with black and brown Drew UCLA students at the bottom. If critics thought UCLA students of color benefited from a hidden affirmative action program, they further thought that the Drew students, who were selected for their interest in working in poor communities of color, had a double admissions advantage. Of course, most people were careful not to state openly that they believed Drew students were academically inferior to UCLA students. Most people, except other Asian American students, who regularly confronted me, confused about where to place me in the hierarchy, They would sideline me on the way to class or after lunch to ask, what are you doing in Drew? Did you not do well in school? Or, gee, if you got into Drew and you're Asian, like not a real minority, you must be exceptional. They expressed a range of emotions from surprise to outright skepticism that I could genuinely be interested in health inequities. More than one implied that I had faked my interest in underserved communities so I could gain a coveted spot in medical school. It would be nice to say that when I was asked these questions, I fought back, that I challenged the implicit bias that students in a minority program would be less qualified, that I argued that they should not judge us on grades and MCAT scores, which are the products of educational and socioeconomic privileges structured by race, or that I pointed out the depressing insinuation that Asian Americans are not supposed to care about underserved communities, even if some of our own communities are severely underserved. But as a young Asian American... I had not been culturally or socially taught to do any of those things. Asian Americans are taught, particularly in medicine, to be embarrassed by our racial and ethnic identities. Although we make up only 5% of the U.S. population, we represent 17% of physicians and in California, 40% of medical students, according to the Association of American Medical Colleges, or the AAMC. Academic medicine even created a new term, underrepresented in medicine, defined by the AAMC as racial and ethnic populations that are underrepresented in the medical profession relative to their numbers in the general population to cope with Asian Americans' outsized presence in the field. The model minority myth has morphed into a negative stereotype in which we are portrayed as so focused on grades and achievements that we have little concern for the communities around us. Multiple studies have shown that Asian American medical students are judged by their faculty to be less kind and compassionate and to have lower levels of empathy compared to their white classmates. When we believe it ourselves, we have internalized this racism. Thus, when the topic of race was dragged into view during my medical school days, even by other Asian Americans, I felt ashamed. Their questions invoked my own imposter syndrome. Perhaps I could never be truly qualified for a program founded on addressing racial injustice. Also, I knew that these interactions were far milder than what most of my Drew classmates experienced. In response to questions about my qualifications for the Drew program, I would suddenly find my shoes highly interesting, mumble a vague statement about health services research and disparities, and look for a quick escape. Fortunately, being part of a mission-driven program helped all of us weather the persistent signals that told us we did not belong. I was and continue to be grateful that my Drew classmates did not question my presence in the program. What mattered was that we showed up, that we supported each other, 
late nights in the library and in call rooms or afternoon lectures after call gave us time and space to share our personal stories, cultures, and experiences. I remember explaining to one of my closest friends, a Black woman born in the U.S., that as a child of immigrant parents, I felt I was expected to fill their hopes and dreams, knowing that they sacrificed their lives for my success. She sighed. Wow, that sounds like so much pressure. I don't know how you handle that. I don't know, I replied. I mean, how do you handle feeling like you have to succeed for all Black people in America? Good point, she conceded. After medical school, I stayed at UCLA for an internal medicine residency and the opportunities in health services research that the school provided. Midway through my intern year, the trauma center at King Drew was closed. Following a series of scandals over the poor quality of care at King Drew, the county decided later that year to close the rest of the hospital as well. I became demoralized, realizing that even as a lowly intern, I could easily order a million dollars worth of healthcare for patients at UCLA to do everything possible with even a slim chance that they would benefit. But for the residents of South Los Angeles, our society had decided it was better that they should have nothing. I found myself frequently on the edges of conversations in the emergency department or at the nurse's station about King Drew that disturbed me. Have you heard? It's just so sad. I don't know where those patients are going to go. Yes, and it's such a difficult patient population. That's why I never go south of the 105 freeway if I can help it. That place has had trouble for years. I don't know why no one has fixed it. As an intern, one already feels like the least consequential person on the team. No one knew I had a personal connection to King Drew. The speakers probably assumed that, like them, I had never set foot in the hospital, perhaps never even traversed the 19 miles that separated UCLA from King Drew. Otherwise, I cannot explain how they could speak so freely with such detachment. I was resentful that my colleagues could not imagine the South Los Angeles community as one made up of real people, as deserving of high-quality health care as our own patients were. Moving between Drew and UCLA taught me that there is no way our healthcare systems will care about black, brown, or other marginalized minority lives until we change who enters the profession and ascends to its leadership. Lack of racial and ethnic diversity throughout all institutions is why the Black Lives Matter movement in 2013 was so necessary. Why, until the past few years, almost no one discussed the glaring tragedy of black maternal mortality and why most recently our policies and systems have collectively and catastrophically traumatized Black communities during the COVID-19 epidemic. Even though California expanded eligibility for Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act in 2014, and the Martin Luther King Jr. Community Hospital opened near the site of the former King Drew Medical Center in 2015, no one expects these changes to produce an influx of majority physicians into South Los Angeles. The persistent segregation of communities by race, combined with our lack of diversity in medicine, will continue to result in chronically underserved minority populations. Despite multiple efforts that reach back decades, progress to diversify the medical profession has been limited. We are approaching the 20th anniversary of the seminal publication from the Institute of Medicine, now the National Academy of Medicine, titled The Right Thing to Do, The Smart Thing to Do, Enhancing Diversity in Health Professions, with little to show for it. Data from the AAMC show that in 2006, 
6.7% of entering medical students were Black, and 7.4% were Hispanic or Latinx. For the 2018-19 academic year, these groups still accounted for only 7.1% and 6.2% of first-year medical students, respectively. Minority groups whose members experienced some of the greatest disparities in health and access, such as American Indians, Alaska Natives, and Southeast Asians, remain severely underrepresented in medical school. Studies have shown that state bans on considering race and ethnicity in public university admissions, particularly in my own state of California, have severely curtailed the progress that schools have made in increasing diversity in medicine. What is less well known is that acceptance rates declined for members of all racial and ethnic minority groups, including Asian Americans. So it troubled me when, in 2014, Students for Fair Admissions, organized and funded by anti-affirmative action activist Edward Bloom, recruited Asian Americans to file discrimination suits against Harvard University and several other highly selective schools. In Students for Fair Admissions, Inc. versus Harvard, the plaintiffs charged that including race and ethnicity considerations in admissions leads to discrimination against Asian Americans in favor of Black and Latinx applicants. As with the model minority narrative, the case again paints Asian Americans as more worthy and other minorities as less so. In late 2019, federal district judge Allison Burroughs ruled in Harvard's favor, finding that the university does not discriminate against Asian American applicants, but the case is expected to eventually reach the U.S. Supreme Court. Perhaps the most notable development in the course of the lawsuit has been the release of Harvard's admissions data which suggests that whites benefit the most from Harvard's admission practices. Harvard grants preferences to athletes, children of alumni, faculty or staff, and those on the dean's interest list who are often relatives of donors. Structural racism has ensured that white students are more likely to fall into these categories. The university engages in institutional racism by granting preference to them. After I graduated from the Drew UCLA program, I became a supporter of the University of California's Programs in Medical Education, or UC Prime, a series of state-funded programs that have adapted the Drew UCLA model and trained students to practice in underserved communities. The programs are meant to move beyond the contentious discussions of race and ethnicity and focus on the needs of the state. The first UC Prime program opened at UC Irvine in 2004. I served on the advisory board for UCLA's inaugural Prime program, which was launched in 2008, and participated in its admissions processes. Today, all five UC medical schools house one or more Prime programs, and approximately one in 10 UC medical students are enrolled in a Prime program. In 2018 to 19, the UC Office of the President reported that 64% of Prime students were underrepresented minorities. Lately, however, I've begun to rethink my advocacy for programs like Drew UCLA or Prime. This is not because I think they should be eliminated, but because medical education, especially publicly funded medical education, should be wholly moved to these models. Medical schools should not set aside 10 to 20 percent of their enrollment for students dedicated to working in underserved communities with separate curricula and training. Instead, Schools should restructure their admissions, curricula, and training programs with a foundational commitment to serving communities with the greatest needs. My experiences as a Drew student further suggest that promoting these programs as a separate track or a program add-on can inadvertently reinforce racial biases. 
As a faculty member, 16 years after my graduation from medical school, I continue to see how students and faculty far too often assume that standards have been lowered for underrepresented minority students. The body of research on racism in medical training is growing because a few dedicated colleagues in health services research have persisted in bringing their findings to light. We need to orient the entirety of medical school admissions to health equity and explicitly prioritize commitment to health equity as equal in merit to other attributes such as grades and MCAT scores. Currently, we unfairly hold students from groups that are underrepresented in medicine to a higher standard of community service while lowering our expectations for white and East and South Asian applicants. No one should be surprised that an Asian American medical student is interested in practicing in communities that are severely underserved. In fact, we should demand such a commitment from all of our students. In adopting a health equity focus in an admissions criterion, we must allow for considerations of race and ethnicity for two reasons. First, our society is racially and ethnically structured, and physicians are part of that society. Decades of research evidence have consistently shown that underrepresented minorities are most likely to serve communities in need. Second, race and ethnicity considerations are needed because they are fundamental components of our identities. Because of the racialized portrayal of the COVID-19 pandemic, Asian Americans are, for the moment, very much seen in this country. Our rates of experiencing discrimination and verbal and physical assault have ballooned, and many of us fear leaving the safety of our homes. In other words, a window into the everyday lives of Black Americans has briefly opened for us. For Asian Americans who have expressed surprise and dismay, this has been a long overdue reminder that our non-whiteness cannot be forgotten. For others like me, it is merely a new manifestation of what we have known all along. Structural racism ensures that our lives in the U.S. are a product of, not distinct from, our identities. When I applied to medical school, I wrote in my personal statement that seeing my mother and other women of color receive uninformed, culturally inappropriate care had motivated my interest in health services research on racial and ethnic disparities. I wrote about how my parents were activists for Taiwanese democracy and independence. My childhood weekends involved petition drives, letter writing campaigns, meetings with elected representatives, and demonstrations. My parents had heavily impressed upon their children that our freedoms to assemble, speak, and act were precious privileges that should not be squandered. I cannot imagine applying to medical school without discussing my background. To contend that our racial and ethnic identities should not be included in medical school applications denies the reality that these identities shape our decisions on where and how we practice as physicians. Ten years ago, the Liaison Committee on Medical Education, or LCME, which accredits schools of medicine, began requiring schools to report on their efforts to increase diversity and inclusion. The overall impact on diversifying medical school classes has been modest. These efforts should be seen only as a first step toward countering the racism that is inherent in medical schools. As advocated by the late Fitzhugh Mullen, schools need to be oriented, evaluated, and ranked by their social mission, a metric that is based on the proportion of graduates who practice primary care, work in health professional shortage areas, and are underrepresented minorities, and that speaks to a school's commitment to advancing health equity and reducing disparities. 
the LCME should hold schools accountable for advancing health equity across all their lines of work, including recruitment, admissions, curriculum, and retention. Pushing medical schools to embrace admission of health equity is likely not enough to end the persistent racist narratives about who belongs in medicine and who does not. But I would like to believe that my own experience suggests that progress is possible. Commitment to a shared vision can chip away at the ongoing racism that perpetuates white privilege in most of our medical schools. Placing health equity at the center of medical education is not merely right or smart, it is essential.